0: All of us, in a way, are Barabbas, that mm-hmm. Jesus, for Barabbas, Jesus died in his place, the innocent one in place of the guilty. And that's us.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the
2: Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, everyone. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. In today's episode, our own Nathaniel Williams will talk with Dan Darling about the characters of Easter. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, news, sports,
0: pop culture, business, etc And we look at it from a Christian perspective. In today's edition of Headlines, we're going to talk about pop culture.
1: A new movie is taking the world by storm. It's called Jesus Revolution. Here to talk about it with us today is Dr. Scott
3: Hildreth. Dr. Hildreth, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So what's the movie about? Uh, Did you enjoy it? Yeah, so the movie, first of all, I love the movie. I thought it was a great movie. The movie tells the story of kind of the beginning days of the Jesus movement. It follows the story of Pastor Greg Laurie and his wife how they met and really got into ministry. So it it really is following this whole uh, moment in American history of great revival out of California uh, where hippies uh, beginning to trust Jesus and everything that went place with that. So, some of our
1: listeners, including yours truly, may be a little too young to remember that. Maybe we've heard about it, but tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about the Jesus movement as a period of history.
3: Yeah, so, you know, during the, uh, the, the late 70s, you have, you have the movement coming out of San Francisco, California, and really swept through the nation. You know, hippies, kind of counterculture, uh, looking for freedom, rebelling against, you know, different things. It was, ended up being in the non Christian side. You know, this whole free love, free sex, kind of rebellion, counterculture movement. And then um, among that people, there were those who began to look to the gospel and become Christians. And so as they became Christians, there was this tremendous, really, revival uh, that took place. Hundreds of people, thousands of people becoming Christians, uh, being baptized uh, in the water, uh, in the ocean in California, uh, several uh, large movements that we would be familiar with today really find their their beginnings in this Jesus movement. Many historians would say that this Jesus movement was kind of the last great American revival mm. and really look back to kind of this culture-shaping moment. And the, the Jesus Revolution movie takes its title from a Time Magazine article that was telling the story of the Jesus movement, and the title of the article was The Jesus Revolution. How, how the gospel, uh, people becoming Christians, was a revolution in culture among this uh, kind of hippie culture. And then it transcended that and really began to make a difference across the United States. What can our listeners learn from the movie? You know, first and foremost, it's a, I mean, it's a telling of a historical moment, right? So it's, we don't go into the movie and think, oh, this is make-believe. And this is a, a fair and accurate rendition of, of a, a moment in American history that really took place you know, the Vietnam War, the hippie movement, everything. And in the middle of that, you had this great revival. So that, so there's one thing. So someone like yourself who said, man, I don't want really to think about the Jesus movement. Well, it would be a great place to go and say, hey, this is, this is something that happened in the country. A bunch of people became Christians. Uh, along with that, though, there's, a, there's several really, I think, poignant moments in the movie. Uh, one of them is this uh, moment when uh, Chuck Smith, who later became the, the the founding pastor of the Calvary Chapel movement and um, and all that, is confronted with this new group of people, new type of people becoming Christians? Now they're coming into his really dying traditional church. Right, you go into a traditional church uh, in uh, in the United States. That's his church, right? The little placard on the wall, giving Sunday school attendance and all that, ties and suits and dresses. And then you get these people who walk in, you know, not bathing, long hair. How does a church respond to this? There are those who walked out, I don't want any part of it. And then the story really is Chuck Smith saying, no, I believe this is of the Lord. Mm. How do we reach new people? Our doors are open to people who need Jesus. And so I think we can learn from that that we, you know, need to be people who are looking to people who need Jesus and realizing that uh, people are asking questions and that Jesus really is the answer. Even when they're not framing their questions in a way that sounds spiritual, uh, that the frustration, the cry for hope and justice and peace and love is actually a cry for Jesus. And this is one thing I think that we get from this, uh, from this movie and that's what Chuck Smith is is really showing through the movie. So this is what takes place. So again, I think there's several things that we can. Take. I think it's a great movie uh, for Christians to take their unbelieving friends to. You're not sneaking up on anybody. Right? If your if your lost friend goes with you to a movie titled The Jesus Revolution, they know what they're
1: getting into. Yeah, it's not like
3: it's not like you know this is subtly a sly Christian movie. It's right up front. Hey, this is a whole movie. About you know about Jesus and about what Christianity did in a real positive sense, but the gospel is clearly presented in the movie multiple times. The real theme of the movie is that the Christian message is the answer to the cries of culture. And so, if you take your friends to the movie, and they have these same types of cries, it should lead to a conversation later. You know, Greg Laurie, uh, his wife, are, are leading a very healthy ministry in. California. So it's not like telling the story of somebody that's not real. You can find him on you know, YouTube or any other place. Hey, is this guy real? He's real. This is when he was in high school and now he's you know, a grown man leading a ministry. So there's all types of connections.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hildreth, for sharing about the movie Jesus Revolution. You can hear Dr. Hildreth on our sister podcast, The Scent Life, new episodes every Wednesday. Dr. Hildreth, thank you for joining us today. Thanks a ton. I appreciate it. Each Easter, we tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. But who were the major players in these events? Who were the key characters of Easter? Here to discuss today is Dan Darling. Dan is the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at our sister seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he also serves as assistant professor of faith and culture at Texas Baptist College. He's the author of many books, including the book we'll discuss today, The Characters of Easter, the Villains, Heroes, Cowards, and Crooks Who Witnessed History's Biggest Miracle. Dan, thank you for joining us today.
0: Well, thank you for having me, and uh, just an honor to be on here with you. I've long admired uh, the work that you do here at the Center for Faith and Culture.
1: Awesome. Well, we're glad you're here today. Now, all of our listeners are familiar with the Easter story, so why did you decide to write a book about the characters of Easter?
0: Well, I've always loved character profiles ever since I was a kid listening to people like Chuck Swindoll and others, Dave Jeremiah, others on the radio. And they would have these great character profile sermon series, you know, Moses and Joseph. I remember in college when we listened to Swindoll's Moses uh, series and, and passing the then, you know, cassette tapes back and forth right, with right. some of my friends. And, you know, I, I've always loved that. I've always loved reading biographies. And I, I feel like, um, you know, I started this when I wrote my book, "Characters of Christmas, that, you know, who are the people that are around the manger scene? Who are these ordinary people who are caught up in this, the, the story of redemption? And wanted to do the same thing with Easter. I think there's a lot to learn by looking at the lives of the people Jesus called to be part of this story, The the people that God in his sovereignty cast to be part of that first Easter story. I think sometimes we... You know, 2,000 years of church history, we look at the disciples, we look at Pilate, some of these major characters, and they're sort of caricatures, if you will. We forget that they are real flesh and blood people. And so if there's a way to sort of walk in their uh, sandals, uh, I think it helps us maybe give a rich texture to the story of the gospel.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about Jesus' disciples real quick. In the book, you highlight Peter, John, Judas, Thomas, they all play significant roles and to varying degrees in the Easter story. What can we learn from Jesus' disciples and uh, the lives they lived and specifically what they did during the Easter story?
0: I think there's a lot we can learn. I think number one is to really understand the cost it took for them to follow Jesus. I think it's easy to read the Gospels and hear Peter ask questions or others and think, oh, how come these guys just couldn't get it? Well, We have the hindsight of having the whole canon of Scripture. We have 2,000 years of church history of of, of learning from preaching and commentaries and and, and scholarship. What we forget is these men risked everything to follow Jesus. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the end of the story. Um, They risked lives. They risked livelihoods. They followed Jesus because they believed that he was the Messiah, the promised one, but they didn't know what that would look like. Did it involve taking over physically as a conquering Rome and getting their country back? Did it mean political winds. What did it mean? But they did follow him. And, and I love the words of Peter when Jesus preaches a pretty hard message in, in John, I believe it's John 6, and disciples are leaving him. People are leaving him. And he turns to his inner core of disciples and says, are you also going to leave me? And Peter says, where else w- will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Mm. In other words, we don't understand everything. We don't even like everything but only you have the words of eternal life. I think that that faith is something that we can look at and say, okay, this is what it means to follow Jesus.
1: I appreciate how New Testament or the gospel writers are not afraid to share the things the disciples did, good, bad, or ugly, more often mm-hmm. bad and ugly, and the questions they had. You know, I think about when Jesus says in John 14, uh, you know to where I'm going, and Thomas kind of speaking on behalf of everybody says, Jesus, we actually have no clue where you're going. I appreciate how it tells us their stories, Mm. honestly, and that, you know, you think about particularly Judas Mm. and and the decisions he makes when you write about Judas's life and his decisions in these moments to betray Jesus. Like, what what, what do we take away from his abandonment of Jesus?
0: Well, first of all, to understand Judas, you got to first understand before you get to the betrayal part, understand that he left everything to follow Jesus. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that Judas was, before he was a betrayer, he was a gospel preacher. He was sent out by Jesus two by two it's likely he, he he was used by Jesus to heal and to preach the good news of the kingdom. And people became followers of Jesus because of his preaching. It's hard to wrap our minds around yeah, that yeah. that he could have been that. I think what we see with Judas is that, you know, Jesus disappointed him and that he did not become the Jesus he wanted him to be. That Jesus was doing everything. The other disciples come from kind of the Galilee area. Judas comes more from uh, Judea. And a lot of scholars think he came from a partic- an area particularly known for people that were more zealots. You know, so there's a spectrum in terms of where people were. Most Jewish people, most people there distrusted Rome, hated seeing that Roman flag flying high above their land, you know, did not like the government, felt like they'd lost their nation, their people, their identity. But there was a spectrum in terms of how do you respond to that, just like there kind of is today politically. Judas was on the far end in terms of like, he wasn't quite Barabbas where it's like he's going to lead an insurrection, but he, he sympathized with some of that. And so, you know, when you read his story, read about Judas, as Jesus makes his way to the cross, he's starting to do everything that you're not supposed to do as a Messiah. He is not letting himself be declared king. He is putting himself in the way of trouble. He is inexplicably in Judas's mind, allowing a bottle of perfume to be wasted instead of, you know, kept in the treasury to store up for later, all of that. And so he becomes kind of for Judas, not the Jesus he wanted. And I think the lesson for us is that we can easily follow Jesus f- for the benefits, follow Jesus for what we get from Christianity. And the tr- truth is, Jesus is the key to a flourishing life. But to follow Jesus and to make him a mascot for our other ambitions, you know, there will come a point where we will either have to do like Judas and betray Jesus, or we'll have to deny ourselves and follow him. The sad thing about Judas, I look at Judas and Peter. Uh, I love talking about Peter's story. I mean, it's probably the largest chapter in the book. Both of them disappointed Jesus. Both of them denied Jesus. Peter turned back toward Jesus and found forgiveness and restoration. Judas did not. Obviously, God in his sovereignty, this is how the story goes. But Judas could have turned back. Even after denying the Lord, he could have turned to the one he had denied, and he could have found forgiveness. Jesus has died even for people who have turned their back on him at Mm -hmm. one point. And so I think the message is, you know, don't think you're too bad to come to the cross and have forgiveness. That's a good word. You mentioned
1: Barabbas. The more I've studied the Easter story and the events leading up to the crucifixion, the more I'm fascinated by that scene with Pilate and Barabbas, Mm. that great exchange in sorts. So talk to us about
0: their part in the Easter story. Well, Barabbas is such a fascinating figure and actually one of the most fun chapters in terms of writing the book, because I just imagine... Barabbas was arrested, put on trial, and sentenced for crimes he did commit that he admitted to committing. Uh, Barabbas was an insurrectionist for hire. A lot of scholars feel like he was hired uh, to go into the crowds and disguise himself and kill people who were in the leadership that, that were not liked. You know, he wanted to overthrow Rome. He was, he was a bad guy. He was kind of a, a mercenary, if you will. But imagine being Barabbas and you're in your cell. You know you're going to die. You're on death row, as it were, whatever that looked like back then. Maybe you're writing letters to home. Maybe you're getting your stuff in order. You contemplate into your life, and then there's a knock on the door, and a Roman soldier says, uh, Barabbas, you've been set free. And it's like, that's odd. It's like, no, you've been set free, and someone's going to die in your place. Now, every year, Pilate, to try to mollify the restless uh, Jewish people that he ruled over, would give them an option of setting someone free. People chose Jesus over Barabbas. There's a whole lesson there, right, that we often choose yeah. something over Jesus. But Barabbas himself is a picture of the gospel that all of us, in a way, are Barabbas, that mm-hmm. Jesus, for Barabbas, Jesus died in his place, the innocent one in place of the guilty. Yeah. And that's us. Yeah, You know, the Bible says all have sinned and uh, we've all gone astray. We've all, like, sheep have gone astray, that Jesus took our sin and died for us. In my sanctified imagination... I just wonder what it was like to be Barabbas the rest of his life. Did he Uh, contemplate this? Did he think, did he turn to the one who died in his place and see that he he not only literally but figuratively died in his place? You know, in my sanctified imagination, I want to think he became pastor of, you know, First Baptist (laughs) Church of, you know, uh, someplace, and we'll see him in heaven, but I don't know. But he's a vivid picture of the gospel.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Pilate, too, Mm. in in that scene. Pilate, just from my own studies of of Mm. this story, you know, we know from history that he was not a nice guy no and yet in this moment of great decision he shows like utter cowardice right yeah. talk to us about pilot
0: there's so much in the pilot story and you're right i mean scholars you know if you read on uh, story of pilot he had used force before to quell a rebellion with violence his leadership was shaky this was not a great role for someone like Pilate. it's a backwater province it's an assignment that he didn't like and you know, Rome was getting restless that he wasn't able to control it. So he had to mollify the Jewish people. And yet he could see that Jesus was innocent. And so he, he does show a stunning lack of courage to do the right thing, even at the expense of his own life. But we should not expect anything different. I mean, his ethic was basically what is truth. What I find fascinating about the Pilate story is how, even in this moment, Jesus is pursuing Pilate. Like we think in that exchange that Jesus is on trial. But it's actually Pilate that's on trial before God. God sends a a dream to his wife so that she can intervene and, and tell Pilate that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is having this conversation with Pilate. One of my favorite scenes, you know, sort of Pilate pulls him behind, like backstage, if you will. And basically is pleading with Jesus to say, hey, hey, work with me here. I'm on your team. Can you help me out here? You know, I have the power to release you. And Jesus reverses it and says, no, actually, you have power because I give it to you. And... I think it's a good lesson for us to know where the real power in the world lies. We get caught up sometimes with positions and titles and people and positions of authority and we get nervous about rogue governments, understandably. But to understand that every human authority is on a leash, essentially. Every human authority only rules at the discretion of God. And Jesus in that moment, the itinerant rabbi from Nazareth, born in a nondescript little town, doesn't have a penny to his name, doesn't have a place to lay his head. He's battered beyond recognition with the clothes on his back, tattered and all that. And yet he has all the power of the universe in that exchange, not the Royal Roman who could snap his fingers and make someone go away. And I think it gives us a lesson about where real power is and where heavenly power is, but also that Jesus as C.S. Lewis describes him as the hound of heaven. He's searching after even Pilate. Hmm. Jesus Jesus is pleading with Pilate. To see the truth of his, that he is the one that can reconcile him to his creator. And again, in my sanctified imagination, I want to think that after all this exchange, Pilate realizes what just happened and that he too bows his knee to the creator. Who knows if we'll see him in heaven. But I, I love that story.
1: Yeah, me too. That's one of my favorite parts. Just in studying it more deeply... Pilate is so concerned about retaining his position of mm-hmm. feeble authority yeah. when the King of Kings, Lord of Lords is right in front of him. Right. So it's just interesting.
0: Authority that he would lose anyway, not long after he lost his authority anyway, because he couldn't control it. So the things we do grasp for that we think are so valuable will slip through our fingers anyways. Mm. When we tell the
1: Easter story, there are some names that we often overlook, including Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. In your book, you call them the secret to disciples. What mm-hmm. role do they
0: play in the story? I love talking about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, Nicodemus, we know that he was maybe the most learned man in Israel, devout Pharisee. You know, he was on the Sanhedrin, which uh, to be a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin meant you were in the minority. Uh, Most of them were Sadducees. So, you know, when we think about Pharisees, we often think about hypocrites and people who are legalistic, and that can be true. But A Pharisee, these are the people that really believed in the scriptures, unlike the Sadducees who didn't believe in the supernatural and only accepted the Pentateuch. We would probably be Pharisees. You know, we'd be Bible-believing folks. And yet Nicodemus was curious enough and, I think, open to the Spirit enough to say, there's something here with Jesus. So he seeks him out at night, whether by cowardice or just because he wanted to have time alone with him, and asks penetrating questions and is not put off by Jesus' answers. You know, Nicodemus and Joseph were both secret followers of Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, they should have been more open about their faith and they should have been more public. The Bible doesn't really rebuke them for this. And I think there's there's something to prudence and wisdom to say, when is the right time to reveal my faith? When is the right time to speak up? You know, one of the things that Nicodemus and Joseph have both given us, particularly Joseph in donating his grave to Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took care of Jesus' body because they, they cared for him. In that moment, asking for the body and caring for it, they were declaring themselves to be with Jesus, which was a risky thing. It's a fringe movement. This was not widespread, you know. And Jesus had died. That's the Jesus interesting Jesus had name. died. So they're yeah. willing to, to put their names to this. But think of what they gave us, right? Joseph of Arimathea, by, by allowing his, Jesus to be buried in his tomb, he gave us the witness of the empty tomb, right? So if Joseph doesn't step up and pay for this tomb... Jesus is probably buried in an unmarked grave like every other criminal. But because he does, of course, he fulfills prophecy, right? Buried in a rich man's tomb as it's prophesied in the Old Testament. But that's the place where the women come and see the empty tomb. That's where the stone is rolled away. Let's talk about the women. What is the significance of the women finding Jesus empty tomb? I think it's really significant. And there's anywhere between, I I think, if you put the piece of gospel accounts together, there's several women, and I profile each one of them in these chapters and um, interesting, you know, you have Mary Magdalene, who, you know, some people think she was a, a repentant former prostitute. Some people think she just had, you know, maybe was troubled in her life. But her encounter with Jesus obviously transformed her life. But then you had others like the mother of, of James and John, who when James and John go to follow Jesus, she doesn't stand in the way. She lets her sons abandon the family business and follow Jesus. She walks with them through that. She's kind of aggressive, right, asking Jesus, hey, can my kids be in the right You know, James and John put their mom up to that. Hey, can you ask so that I can get a prominent position? But she's a follower of Jesus to the end. Then you have, I think, Salome and and some others that one of which was in the inner circle, in like the the royal palace and was a follower of Jesus. I think it's significant for a couple of reasons. I think number one, it's interesting to me that everyone fled, but the women didn't. The women Mm. were faithful to Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was faithful She's there at the foot of the cross, seeing the agony of her son dying. I mean, I I have children. I can't stand seeing them hurt. Imagine what that was like for her. But these women were faithful to the end. When everyone else fled, they were faithful to the end. And they were the first witnesses of the resurrection. You could say accurately that women were the first evangelists. They're the first ones to tell the world that Christ had risen from the grave. I think it says something to us about the way that Christianity, genuine, faithful Christianity, elevates the status of women. For women to be witnesses was scandalous. First of all, for women to be disciples was borderline scandalous. But for them to be witnesses, we know that they're and this is one of the things that folks like N. T. Wright and others talk about so well in their apologetic for the resurrection, the witness of women would not be accepted, you know, as valid. So the fact that they're the first witnesses shows you, I think, the validity of the resurrection. But it shows us that Christianity elevates women, the mm-hmm. status of women, that it puts women as equal. And I think the legacy throughout the ages from these women at the tomb on throughout our current day of, of God using faithful women to herald the gospel. And I think of all the people throughout the ages, you know, at Southern Baptists we think about our own Lottie Moon.
1: Yeah, Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong. Annie Armstrong.
0: <laughs> we think of all sorts of folks throughout the ages. And, you know, what a, what a great model and and uh, story that is, that it's it's women that herald the first news of the gospel.
1: Dan, this season we're focusing on spiritual formation across Mm -hmm. our blogs, our podcasts, everywhere else. What can these characters of Easter teach us about spiritual formation?
0: Uh, that's, that, that's a great question. I think it teaches us that, especially when you look at the lives of, of the disciples like Peter and John, that there are key big moments in our lives that are moments of life change and inspiration, right? That conference talk we hear that book we read that just changes our lives or that conversation. But mostly we change bit by bit over a lifetime. Uh, I think of Peter and John, but particularly Peter, I, I talk about in the book that he didn't just have one call. He had multiple calls. There's Andrew coming to him and saying, we found him. You know, I could see Andrew grabbing him by the lapel and saying, we found the Messiah. There's Jesus visiting him on the beach and saying that cast the nets to the other side. There's Jesus healing his mother-in-law. There's Jesus saying, follow me. All those. And then even their development, right, of, of their faith. It's bit by bit walking with Jesus over three years that formed them through the power of the Holy Spirit into the men that they became. And that's how it is with us, that even though we're not apostles, walking with Jesus, walking in the power of the Spirit, bit by bit, two steps forward, one step backward, over a lifetime that shapes us, you know? So... I like to say that, yes, I've been formed by great moments and, and speakers and conferences, but I've also been formed by mostly by church services that I've mostly forgotten, sermons that I can't remember, hymns that when I was a kid, I didn't know what I was singing, but I was singing them, and over over a lifetime that forms and shapes us. And I think that's the key thing about spiritual formation, that it's a slow steady progress forward within the power of the spirit
1: yeah very good dan we appreciate so much you joining us today talking about this book the characters of easter how can people follow you and your work and where can they get the book
0: well you can you can get the book anywhere books are sold go to my website danieldarling.com and check it out we also have some other things you can get if you want to do this as a church-wide thing sermon outlines and other things that might be helpful guides um, you could follow, follow me on my website, danieldarling.com. I have a newsletter there. Also, if, if you are so inclined to go on social media, I'm on Twitter, at Dan Darling, to put up with some of my hot takes about sports, uh, but you can follow me there.
1: That's all right. Here
0: at the Christ and Culture
1: podcast, we have our own hot takes about sports, and uh, we, make, we make sure to throw them in there every now and then. Yes. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me.
0: And now it's time for our listener favorite, On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors, friends, staff, etc. at Southeastern share what they're reading. And today, our very own Nathaniel Williams, who's usually behind the scenes editing things, but he also is quite the reader. Dr. Williams, I know you're not Dr. Williams, but I'm calling you that anyway for fun.
3: What are you reading?
1: Well, one of the genre of books that I enjoy reading is actually books about sports. And there's Amen. one I read recently about Roberto Clemente called Clemente, The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero by David Moranis. This book came out in 2005. I've had it sitting on my bookshelf for about a decade, and I finally picked it up and read it, and it was a delight. I don't know a lot about Roberto Clemente. He's a little bit before my time as a baseball fan, but through reading this book, I came to appreciate him uh, as a man, as a player, as a humanitarian, and as a legend. And uh, the book is really, really well done. The writing in this book is superb. And it contains some of the best descriptions of baseball that I've ever read. There's a couple of pages, literally um, three or four pages, where he's just describing Clemente's approach to the batter's box and how he gets ready and his swing and his lumbering to first base. And the beautiful, artful description of how he does that is some of the best sports writing I've ever read. And so I've never actually seen a Clemente at bat, but I feel like I have because of how well this book is written. Uh, but it, but it's just a, a fascinating book, a wonderful book to talk about Roberto as a person, but again, about the things that he valued and his humanitarian work. So it's I a great be, great book. Yeah,
2: I may be the only person at the table here that's old enough to actually have uh, seen Clemente play, and he he was a wonderful ball player, and I do remember uh, the news of his untimely death in the plane crash. He he really was a great humanitarian. That's a great recommendation.
1: Yeah. And so you will enjoy this book. Both of you will as baseball fans. It's called Clemente, The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero by David Moranis.
0: Thank you, Nathaniel. And very timely as we enter into baseball season this year.
2: Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode. And if you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating just like you should do, and share it with a friend. We're going to take the next week off for Easter, and we'll have a new episode on April 14. We hope you have a wonderful celebration of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We'll see you in a few weeks.